Well, Ephesians chapter 1, I'll begin reading at uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul begins when speaking to the Ephesian church with the doctrine of election. And the doctrine of election is uh, that where God, out of his sheer good pleasure from eternity past, chooses those in Jesus Christ who are to be his. And then in this chapter, we see that after Paul speaks about the Father electing us in the Lord Jesus Christ, he then speaks about the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we were chosen in. And he sets Christ in his work, particularly the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross before us. And then at the end of the chapter, we didn't read it, but then he uh, brings us to the Spirit, where he speaks about uh, the Holy Spirit sealing us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a very Trinitarian passage, a very Trinitarian chapter that the Apostle puts before us. We've been learning in the high school Sunday school class lately that uh, each person of the Trinity is always involved in everything that God does, even though one person of the Trinity may take the lead, if you will, the Father in planning salvation, the Son in accomplishing it, the Spirit applying it. We should also realize that though one person of the Trinity may take the lead in that aspect of our salvation, the whole of our triune God is involved. Now, in, in verse 4, you'll note here that the Apostle Paul says that he, the Father, God the Father, chose us in him. That is, the Father chose you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose you, and we'll see that phrase many times in Paul's writings, in Christ, that little prepositional phrase there. Election needs to be understood rightly. God is the one who ultimately does the choosing of his people in Jesus Christ. We are not chosen for ourselves because of ourselves, but we are chosen because of Christ. We are chosen in Jesus Christ. That is, the, the Bible teaches here we are chosen not because of anything special within us, but because of God's uh, sheer grace in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible sometimes says that we were chosen despite who we were or because of who we were. That is, we were chosen because God often chooses the weak and the foolish things of this world in order to confound the wisdom. We talked about that this morning. Many people, well-meaning, distort the doctrine of election. But really, the doctrine of election is one of the most humbling but comforting doctrines. This doctrine of election is for your good and it's for your assurance. It's not meant to shake your faith. It is meant to confirm your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people, I think, when they think the doctrine of election, they think 
they don't like it because ultimately it seems to put the matter of the choosing in God's hands rather than in men. And so they want to redefine the doctrine of election. And so they'll say, well, God chose us based on the foreknowledge of God, which is what the Bible says. But then what they say is that that foreknowledge is the omniscience of God and that, that God looks down history and, and he sees who will choose Christ. And so God will choose men and women based on whom he sees choosing Christ. Well, that's not what the doctrine of election teaches. God does not root his doctrine of election in his omniscience. What then does it mean when it's the Bible teaches that God elects us according to his foreknowledge? It means that he elects us according to his love in eternity. His foreknowledge should be understood not as um, something of God's omniscience, but rather of something of God's heart. For example, when Adam loved his wife, the Bible, the old King James, if you were raised on that, said that Adam knew his wife. That's not to say Adam is giving intellectual assent to his wife. He's loving his wife. Same here with foreknowledge. God loves his people in Jesus Christ. And on the basis of his love for you in Jesus Christ, he chooses you. Now, this does not mean that you are free of any human responsibility, however. And I want you young people especially to understand this. That as God chooses you in Jesus Christ, the Bible also then says you must come to Christ. You, you have an obligation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to look to him, and, and to put yourself in the place where you will see Christ, that is in the word. <clears throat> I've used the illustration <coughs> of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a little man, short man. There's a big crowd. Lots of people coming to see Jesus. Zacchaeus doesn't get there apparently early enough. And so he's in the second, third row. Can't see, wants to see. What does he do? He puts himself in the tree. He puts himself in a place where he can see the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Puritans had a term for this. And that was, um, they would often speak about preparation. You, you need to prepare yourself. When you come to the Lord's table, you need to prepare yourself for the Sabbath day. You need to prepare yourself to, the come, for the, to come to Christ. Now, that can be overdone. Um, I, I think the Bible doesn't say, you know, prepare yourself and then come to Christ. But it says, come to Christ. And how do I come to Christ? Well, one of the ways I come to the Lord Jesus Christ is I put myself like Zacchaeus in the place where I will see him. And where do I find him? I find him in what you're doing right now, in worship, in preaching, in reading, hearing God's word. Make the most of these opportunities, young people, to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't want you to hear me saying that because we believe in the doctrine of election that we are free from all human responsibility. Yes, God is sovereign, but also man is accountable to God with what you do under his sovereignty. So that while we see, in verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, even before creation, that you would be in Christ. <clears throat> but notice in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, with regard to Christ in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. 
So that he says, here is the Son, though. He sets forth Christ. Why does Paul set forth Jesus Christ? He sets forth Jesus Christ so that you would go to Christ. Look at what Paul says in verse 18 of the same chapter. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? What is Paul doing here? Paul is saying God is sovereign in salvation. But that, that, that nevertheless, that does not mean, therefore, we are to be um, irresponsible. But what we rather are to go to God, who has done this great work for us here. Now, <clears throat> Paul, you'll note, was, notice here, he was chosen. Paul says that here. Paul, an apostle, look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, tell me something here. When you read about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, or maybe in his biographical account that he writes in, say, the epistle to the Philippians, where do you find the Apostle Paul wanting to become a Christian first? Was it when he was holding the coat of Stephen? Uh, was was, was it when he was breathing out murderous threats against the church? Was it while he was getting permission from the Sanhedrin to arrest men and women? Was it while he was traveling on the road to Damascus? What inkling does the Bible give us that Paul was chosen on the basis that he would choose Jesus Christ? There's nothing in the historical account that says, oh, here's a man that was striving hard to find Christ, and yet what? God chose him, not only to be in Christ, but to be an apostle. Look at, in the Old Testament, God, we are told, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, right? No. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. Why? Well, because Jacob was chosen. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Why was Jacob chosen? Was Jacob chosen because he stole the birthright? Because he deceived his father, dressed up like Esau, in putting lamb's covering on his hands on the back of his neck? No. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, while they were still yet in the womb, God chose him. Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord, Moses says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. He says, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. You were only 70 people when you went down into Egypt. And yet God chose you. Jesus says, I chose you to his disciples. You did not choose me. I chose you. So we see that that the heart of our salvation is the choice of God and not of men. Um, When did he do this? Well, look at your text. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means in eternity past. 
It's as if to stress the point that God chose his people in Christ sovereignly and irrespectively of anything foreseen in them. Paul says that you were chosen prior to a son being created, before God ever said, let there be light. When the Spirit was brooding over the surface of darkness, you were already chosen in Christ. Now, why do so many Arminians kick against such a wonderful comfort? here. I think it's because they are unsettled by this idea that it is that it is all of mercy. It's all of grace. But it shouldn't unsettle us. It should confirm us in Jesus Christ. Because think of it this way. Here's a God who's, who is saying what? I chose you in eternity past that means I've spent so much time in eternity with you on my mind. Do you think I'm going to lose you or forsake you? You were chosen in Jesus Christ. In the eternal Son, I made a covenant with the Son. And you were included in that covenant as the Father and the Son agreed together in the redemption of his people the son would shed his own blood. And it's as if God is saying that my son has endured too much suffering for you. He's undergone too deep a hell for you. You are chosen in him <coughs> to be holy and to be blameless. And God indeed is saying here, you were chosen for what? Holiness, to be set apart. You are, you are a fallen sinner in Adam, but I have chosen you in the second Adam. You in your first father rebelled, but I still, I had chose you in Christ from that fallen lump of clay, as Paul describes it in Romans, to be set apart for vessels of holy use. And so God separates his people in Jesus Christ from all of humanity. But that separation will be fully realized on the day of judgment, God will put his people on the right side of Christ while the wicked will be placed on the left. And it'll be an irreversible um, chasm between those on Christ's right and Christ's left. And those on the left side of Christ will suffer eternal punishment. This is why, for example, young people, you ought to take seriously the, the claims of Christ's love for you is because, um, because we are fallen, we are, we are tempted to think that, that this world is mostly what there is. But the Bible says that this world is, is really fleeting. It's, it's a shadow. It's going to go away very quickly. And then we have billions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years, eternity in the future. You know, I was looking at a bird out on my deck this afternoon from my kitchen window, and I was thinking about the bird. It looked like it was a very young bird. It looked like it, maybe it had been hatched just this spring. It was, looked, had a very young look to it, and I thought, I wonder how long do these birds live? I don't know. Some of you probably do know, and you can tell me. And I thought, I'm sure it's very short compared to a human life, isn't it? These sparrows, these chickadees are very short lives, and, and I thought about how so many creatures, so many animals 
have comparatively short lives compared to what a human lives, but yet how short are our own lives compared to an eternity? Um, we must look from God's perspective like we look at a bird there. Soon it's over. And then there's nothing but finality. Heaven or hell, that's all that, that is left. This is why we must go to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, early, we must go to Christ. Early will I seek thee, the Bible says. And so, young people, are you seeking Jesus Christ early? Early in your life? Paul says here, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before him. What does that mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. You are, you are set apart for God. This is the meaning of your existence. That you belong to God. God would be your God and you would be a part of his people. You would be blameless on that day. It's hard for us sometimes to fathom, given our tendency to think of on our sinfulness, that we will be blameless. Not just objectively and judicially, that, that's true of us now, but even dynamically, we will be blameless uh, in, the, in the great day. We will be completely sanctified. The, the depravity of our nature will be holy eradicated, not just its dominion over us, broken as it is now, but it will be completely eradicated. You will not be able to sin. You know, Sproul loves to use those little Latin phrases. You know, and he goes on, to translate it, you, you will not be able to sin in glory. Now, let me move on. So the Father chooses you. The Son does what for you? Jesus Christ redeems you. Look at verse 7. In him that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, what I want to do now is I want to set Jesus Christ and him crucified before your eyes. I want you to see the, the salvation that is ours in the Son. The Father chooses us, the Son accomplishes the salvation, the Spirit applies the salvation here. And I hope that the Spirit is applying this message tonight to our lives here. I want us to turn to the person and the work of the Son. I want you to turn your attention now by faith to the second person of the Trinity. The Father being the first person who elects you, but he elects you in the Son, and Paul now says that it is in the Son you have redemption through his blood. Now, what is this redemption? What does this mean? Well, in general, the term redemption means purchasing something for a price. The New Dictionary uh, of Theology says it is the purchasing something for a price that otherwise would be under forfeit. So, for example, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 25 and verse 25, Relatives could redeem a family member, buy them back from their poverty and a future of slavery if they got into a financial bind. And, and they, a family member could come and rescue them, redeem them. We see with Boaz, the theme of redemption. Boaz, what does he do? He redeems his 
relative's land, and with that land comes Ruth, who becomes his wife. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, God redeems Israel from captivity, we are told. The prophets, Isaiah 48, verse 20, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And then, of course, Psalm 130, verse 8, which Martin Luther believed was the most gospel-oriented of all the Psalms, uh, said, uh, says in verse 8, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities here. And so we see that in that verse, that last verse of that Psalm, reference to this idea of redemption as it relates to sin, not just, for example, slavery uh, and destitution. But here, clearly, the psalmist uses this word with regard to sin. That's the way Paul uses it here. In redemption, in him we have redemption through his blood here. Paul is speaking about a person who is sold into slavery by nature, under bondage to sin, and yet, because of Jesus' work on the cross, that slavery uh, is ended. He rescues them. In Mark chapter 8, verse 37, we read this, For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And what Jesus is saying there is there's nothing that anyone could give. A man, a woman, a boy, or a girl could give for their soul. Only Christ can redeem a soul. Only the blood of Christ can purchase a soul. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life a ransom for many. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. And so generally what we see here is the biblical redemption implies the purchase of something for a price. Specifically, it is God showing us, his people, that Jesus Christ would be the Redeemer who would set us free from the slavery to sin and to the devil, and that you have been brought into a new liberty. Formerly, the devil owned us in Adam, possessed the title to us, and the proof of that deed was our own sins, our addiction to sins. And we wore our sin like a slave wears chains. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We couldn't bring about our own liberty. There was no amount of reformation that would deliver us within ourselves. We were under the bondage of sin till the day of execution. It, it took a work from the outside a work that only can be found in Jesus Christ. This is why you need to believe on Jesus as your Redeemer here. That Jesus is the one who sets you free. You cannot set yourself free. You cannot change yourself. The leopard, the leopard cannot change his spots. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin, says the prophet. It is, it is God who must do this work. The Redeemer comes with hammer and chisel to break off these chains and to break the bands of guilt um, and to set us free from that shame. Many times we see, in, for example, in the Gospels, Jesus would say to somebody, for example, who was a paralytic, <clears throat> arise, get up and walk. 
It's a picture of what Christ does for our soul. He says our sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Get up and follow after me. So what is this redemption here that Paul is speaking of in verse 7? It is the power of God unto salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the freeing of prisoners. It is the purchasing of slaves. It is the raising up of the dead. This is why Paul said you must be born again to Nicodemus, who was a religious man. He was a theologian. He was a teacher of the Bible. And yet Jesus had to bring to him this most basic of theological truths that, that no amount of mere theological study could bring about eternal life for a member of the Sanhedrin. The Spirit of God must set Nicodemus free. We, were by nature, were slaves to a tyrannical master, and yet God saves us with a strong right arm. He takes the lonely and he brings them into fellowship. He takes the widow and remarries her to himself. He causes us to walk on dry ground while he drowns our old enemies under the sea as we're brought forth through the waters of baptism. The New Testament tells us that it was a picture of our baptism at the Red Sea in Christ. First of all, friends, I want to make a few applications. Number one, we are to put these pictures of redemption, both from the Old and the New Testament, into our own photo album and draw strength and encouragement. Do not forget who you once were before the Redeemer liberated your pitiful life. You do not want to grow proud like a Pharisee who stands at the temple and praises God that they're not like other men. We need to remember that a sovereign God through Jesus Christ has changed us forever. We do not want to become proud and arrogant. We also do not want to go back to the old sinful chains that are lying and rusting on the floor. Proverbs says that uh, as a, a sow goes back to wallow in the mire or as a dog returns to its vomit, so the fool goes back to their sin. Why would we grieve the Spirit of God by putting on things that formerly were broken off of us? You know, the, the Israelites showed how ungrateful they were when they were delivered out of Egypt because they complained in the wilderness. Oh, we had onions, we had leeks, we had this and that. When they forget that they had been saved from a life of slavery. If you are not in Jesus Christ tonight, I offer the Savior to you. He stands ready to redeem tonight. Come now to the Redeemer. He stands with a key in hand to take off those chains that bind you to your sin. He is awaiting those who will by faith trust in him. You can call upon his name. Do not become discouraged if you have been seeking after Christ and have not yet seemingly found him whom your soul loves. Pursue him with everything that is within you, with your strength and with your energy. Make this of the greatest importance to your own life and to your own soul. 
that you would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that all these other things would be added to you. Don't give up on Jesus Christ until you come away with the sense of what the Bible says, that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, give him no rest until he makes Zion the praise of the earth. Well, I would change that just by way of application. Give him no rest until he makes Zion the praise of your own soul. If you are unconverted and you feel the weight and the heaviness of guilt, remember there is a redeemer. You can look to him, pray to him. Look to his great work. Look to his great salvation. He is not a weak redeemer. Jesus Christ, his work is great. His blood is able to save to the utmost. His blood can save everyone. There, there is no one that his blood could not reach. His salvation uh, is so strong and mighty and able. Do not let the evil one stop you from coming to Jesus Christ. Satan may try to dissuade you. Satan may try to divert you. Satan may try to uh, tempt you and, and suggest hard things to you, that the, the Christian life is a hard life, the Christian life is onerous, it's no fun. But remember that Satan is both a liar and what? A murderer. A liar and a murderer. And he seeks to murder your own soul, if possible. Now, how was the redemption accomplished for sinners? How did Jesus Christ do this for me, you ask? What did Jesus have to pay to secure liberty for sinners? Well, we are told in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is what? He's speaking about the mighty work of Jesus Christ in that phrase, through his blood. That blood refers to the blood shed by Jesus on the cross at Calvary, on Golgotha's hill. This is the highest and the greatest work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, far beyond his, his teaching and his preaching and his miracles, this, this is the work for which he came into the world, to give his life as a ransom for many, that his blood would cover the transgressions of his people. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death, temporal death, spiritual death, eternal death. All that comes by way of sin. Yet Jesus Christ deals with all of these things. With regard to temporal death, Jesus says that he who believes in me should never die, but what? Have eternal life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Spiritual death, Christ's death on the cross, raises up those who believe in Jesus Christ spiritually. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Once we were dead in our sins and trespasses, now we are alive. And eternal death, Christ's death delivers us from hell and judgment, God's holy justice. This is the price that had to be paid for all this liberty. No man could pay that price. No works, no piety, no prayers, no Sunday school teaching, no giving in the church can pay for that kind of redemption. It has to be the Son of God dying on the cross. 
It has to be the Son of God because only the Son of God is without any sin. He alone can give blood that is sinless blood. He alone can take the, the, the sin on himself and substitute himself. Jesus Christ came into the world, and in many ways he came looking like a slave. He was born into our humiliation. He was born under the law of God. But what we know, he, being the second Adam, had no sin in himself, and so he could fulfill God's law for you and me. He could obey the commandments perfectly for us, and so he could substitute himself in life and death and in resurrection that blood is the sign of the penalty for your sins. Your sins have been punished completely in Jesus Christ. The sign of that is the blood of Christ. In the Old Covenant, the people of God had to learn this, this lesson of redemption. And that's why they had so many thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices. Bulls sacrificed, calves, goats, sheep. Sin offerings, guilt offerings, whole burnt offerings, all kinds of offerings all the time, every day. Multiple offerings on certain days, holy days, Sabbath days. Blood on the Passover, uh, so much blood shed by animals that the, they, the historians tell us that the river Kidron that runs through Jerusalem would turn red. <laughs> with all the blood of these animals, and yet not one drop of animal blood could save even a single sin. All of that was typological, pointing to the Jesus being the Lamb of God. That's why Jesus in the upper room at the Passover said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. He was the fulfillment. He was, as John the Baptist said, at the beginning of his ministry. That which was said at the beginning of the ministry is true at the end of Jesus' ministry. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His sacrifice, his shedding of blood, redeems us. All of those animal sacrifices were pointing to this one moment. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul was talking to the elders at Ephesus, he said, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, showing us also that Christ not only redeems us by his blood, but that he is also fully God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, no amount of money, bought your soul. <coughs> he says, you weren't purchased by silver or gold from the feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, says Peter. Now, what does this blood accomplish for you? What does the blood of Jesus Christ really do for you? The chief accomplishment of the Son of God is the redemption of men in the forgiveness of their sins. That is the very death of Jesus Christ, the shedding of the God-man's blood vicariously atones for the sins of those who believe in him. That is, Christ's blood shed on that cross accomplishes, John Murray makes this point in Redemption Accomplished and Applied, that the death of Christ doesn't just make your salvation possible, it secures the salvation. You are saved by Christ. You're not just given an opportunity to be saved by the death of Christ. The death of Christ saves you. That is what is efficacious. At the heart of your salvation is the death of Christ. Now, 
you obviously don't come into existence for another 2,000 years. How does this work? What the Bible teaches is that the Spirit is the one who applies what Jesus did historically 2,000 years ago is applied by the Spirit to you. So that when you are born again and he gives you the gift of faith, that faith is placed in what? The death of Christ. But, but that, 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 that death is what secured your salvation. That death is what redeems you. It's not your walking of the aisle. It's not you signing the pledge card or praying the prayer. That, that may be an outworking of the Spirit of God applying the redemption. But the, the, the redemption was secured 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ. That's, in one sense, if I can put it this way, that's when you got saved. You got saved 2,000 years ago. Even before you, you lived in this world. Now, it had to be applied historically by the Spirit of God. That's down, that's down at the end of this chapter. <laughs> I haven't gotten to the Spirit yet. But Christ is a substitute for you on the cross. All your transgressions, all of the things that you're ashamed of are laid on the back of Christ on the cross. Every sin of commission, every sin of omission from your life, past, present, all your future sins have been laid on the back of Jesus Christ as he hangs on that cross. I think they were placed, myself, I think they were placed on Christ uh, on the last three hours on that cross. Remember, Christ hangs on that cross for six hours. And I think it is, it is at noon when, when, the, when the sky becomes miraculously dark and that outer darkness, as Joel Beakey likes to call it, the outer darkness of hell descends on the cross of Christ. That's when I think this substitutionary nature is taking place here, where our sins are placed on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ now is what? He's entering in. He's descending into hell. The judgment of, of the Father is falling upon the Son for the sins of his people. This is, this is when, as Al Martin points out, you notice here, this is when all the mocking stops. All the mouths become quiet. Nobody is saying, come down from that cross and we will believe on you anymore. That was in the first three hours. But now we've entered into a, a new phase on this cross. The moment that God comes down in judgment on his son, Christ is beginning to pay the equivalent of eternal hell. Now, this, of course, is difficult for our minds to get around. That in space and time and history, Christ can pay the equivalent of eternity. But this is what the scripture teaches God's justice is vindicated in the punishment. His, his eternal punishment is, is propitiated in those three hours, the last three hours on the cross. All the sins of all of his people are placed upon Christ and Christ cries out, my God, my God. Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? Because he is the propitiation. He is satisfying divine justice this is where righteousness and peace kiss is in this moment <laughs> that the righteousness of god is vindicated in the punishment of sin and that those who are sinners can truly be forgiven without god compromising any of his justice that god can be both as paul says just and justifier 
He can be just in dealing with your sins and not winking at it, and he can justify you a sinner. He can declare you righteous tonight because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And I know that this is Rome. Rome the Roman Catholic Church says that this is, this is Protestant fiction. <clears throat> but it's not. This is the teaching of the gospel. The love and the mercy which Christ did not know in those last three hours, in a sense, was withheld as he, under, as he experienced the justice, the righteousness. Though you could say that the Father loved the Son more at that moment than any other time that Christ was on the cross, but yet uh, the sense of that was withheld from him as he suffered for us. What is the nature of this forgiveness? The, there's a couple things I want you to know. Number one is the extent of it. All your sins are included in the death of Christ. Sometimes Satan will come to you and he'll, he'll say there's, there's this sin that you committed in your past and that can never be blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's an outright lie. That one sin, Martin Lloyd-Jones called it, that one sin that troubles you, that troubles you from your past, that shames you to the, to the point where you, you wonder, am I really a Christian? Maybe it's private sin. Maybe it's against someone else. Maybe it's the sin of a, a churchman, the sin of an employee, the sin of a neighbor. But all of those sins are covered. There's no maverick sin out there waiting to accuse you. There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sins. He trods our sins under the feet under his feet at the bottom of the ocean. He does not bring them back to his account. And this is of great and practical importance for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Some of you maybe live with some kind of vague guilt in your Christian walk. And that is unfortunate. The Bible doesn't want to leave you there. The Bible wants you not to have some vague guilt but wants you to know pardon and assurance of love. We are, we are told, we're commanded to strive for assurance in these things. Think about this for a moment. What sin is so outstanding that the Father did not afflict the Son sufficiently for it in your life? How much deeper hell must Jesus undergo in order to pay for that sin. Jesus could not have gone any deeper under the wrath of God. The Father plunged the Son to the very bottom of divine wrath. The Bible says that Jesus drank every last drop of the cup of wrath that was placed in his hands at Gethsemane. What element of divine justice is missing from the cross? There is none. Did Jesus not bear your sins sufficiently? You who live with a, a, a vague sense of condemnation, was he not perfect enough? Was he not enough of a substitute? Is his righteousness not sufficient? There is no element lacking in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. God's plan and wisdom for redemption is complete and absolute. 
God is satisfied with the death of his son. You should be satisfied with the death of Jesus Christ in your place. God's justice is completely spent. The sins of the elect have been executed on the head of Christ. What God's people are to receive is that proclamation of good news. It is to be good news. God would have the church be as ambassadors to tell each and every one of his people that justice is completely satisfied in Jesus Christ. And now is the time to pronounce pardon, forgiveness. The king came into this world to make peace between you and God. And he did it. He accomplished it. But you must, by the Spirit, receive it and believe on it. God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. He would rather all come unto him and believe. And I do believe that the Father does earnestly plead, I think, with as as Joel Beakey puts it, he pleads with the reprobate as much as he pleads with the elect. It, it, the, the pleading of God to come to Jesus Christ is a sincere and earnest pleading. It, it, it only shows the obstinacy of the sinner. I think, I think one of the reasons that, that the sinner does not come truly and sincere, sincerely to Christ it shows only the obstinacy of the sinner. Don't put God to test. Receive his grace tonight. Believe on his son and know the forgiveness of sin, the redemption purchased by his blood. Amen. Father, thank you for these uh, wonderful truths. And may the Spirit apply what we've heard tonight to our lives.